0: Historians mean by modernity is different than what like the average everyday person means by, by modernity, and so so what people mean by modernity usually is the era that somewhere in the ascendancy of the French Revolution, think like the late 1700s to about the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989. So like for about 200 year window, late 1700s to early ni- late 1900s is kind of the window of the modern era because there was a lot of common philosophies, you know, philosophies of government, philosophies of, there's a worldview there. The belief in humanity's progress, belief in science, belief in technology, belief in knowledge, and that if we just create all these systems and humanity will improve, and then we had two world wars and it didn't work, right? You know, that sort of thing. And so but that's, most people trace it to that. So just, we'll, we'll get more into that um, when we go, um, but that'll make more sense. So for those of you who are just coming in, I just handed this out um if you didn't get one it's on the desk behind jessica yeah what's up did last week get recorded? i think it did with chris i'm gonna have to go back and see because he had trouble with the video so we're going to do the video still okay. um but it is it is somewhere but it's like an eight hour long video because it just kept recording when he left oh. Oh. and so i got the re <laughs> so i've got i got to figure out where in the video it is and then david dinger's got to like cut it so it's okay. going to take a second so i know it's there but like, so I see this screen, I see my screen and that was shared because I shared it for him before I left and went to Rigby. And so it just looks like my screen in silence for like, eight, because it kept recording. So I've got it. So I know I have it because there was parts I can hear. I just need to figure out how to, to send that to him because it's such a huge file. And so we're going to have to, it was just kind of a bizarre thing um, as far as that goes. Um, yeah, no problem. So yeah, I will try to, I'll, I'll probably call it like understanding the times special guest or something so that, cause he does it. Cause I'm going to pick up pretty much where we left off on um, as far as that goes. If you already, if you already brought your session two one, if you've been in class, I'm going to finish that session two one. And then there's a new grid thing that I printed off for everybody. That grid I will explain, but I was kind of joking with people as they were coming in the grid is my told you so. And, there, and the reason I say that as I made that chart in 2012, And so I'm coming back to it now saying, hey, (laughs) now I got Carl Truman's curriculum. And I'm like, he's kind of saying kind of what I was I was kind of on, you know, in my worldview studies and my master's degree um, on some of these same things in terms of the history of worldviews. Um, The difference is, is we're now actually seeing it in popular culture more than we used to. Um, But actually, some of the stuff that's happening, if you look at I have not I, I, you know, it's one of those, you know, swear my mother's life sort of thing. You know, I have not edited it. it is exactly as it was in 2012 when I made the chart. And I taught a class called uh, Worldviews at War. I taught a class. It was one of the first classes I taught here at Grace. And I made that chart, and I would say it's actually probably even more relevant than it was then. I um, mean, you'll see why when we, we get to understanding the times, um, as far as that goes. So, um, uh, thank you for being uh, courteous to Pastor Chris when he was here. Um, he had some technology issues, I know, but we got that ironed out. And like I said, once I get that eight video recording trim, we should be good to go. And his uh, his kind of special will be there. So what I would like to do is so we don't get too distracted is I would like to finish um, his presentation and he gets into the romantics. So we're on the, if you're on this session too, and he said he did some of the study questions with you a little bit, he kind of hit like the first couple. He said he didn't do all of them but we didn't actually get to the video. So just to kind of review where we're at. The first page was mostly about Jean-Jacques Rousseau who's kind of one of the big founding figures of romanticism, but his big thing was that If we would just get rid of the artificiality of society and the artificiality of civilization, and if we would just let people live closer to nature, and this is where we get the myth of the noble savage, right? That if we would just let people kind of to their own devices and we just get society and religion and institutions out of the way, people could be their authentic selves. That's kind of the big Rousseau idea. And it was hugely influential for a while. And so, and the way I put it, and it's on your handout, is that it makes us inauthentic If we could just follow our heart and live in unity with nature, we would be more authentic humans. So we reject society's morals, manners, ethics in order to be more genuine and everyone would be better off. That's kind of where we ended. And he also mentioned child centered learning as something that comes from Rousseau. So that impacts education theory. I'm in education. My wife's in education. Um, This is something that people talk about still. Um, If anything, many of these theories that you're going to hear, not only in the the, uh, modern self with Truman, but also in the critical theories. When we get to things like critical race theory and critical gender studies and all that stuff, a lot of that stuff really gets its heyday or gets its promotion in schools of education. Um, There are certain disciplines like schools of economics aren't really that concerned about um, some of these critical studies. I mean, it kind of infects it, but not by much. Most economic schools are about supply and demand and micro or macro, you know, and stuff like that. But in schools of education, or in soft sciences like psychology or sociology or anthropology, or those kinds of soft sciences, oh boy, are these very prevalent, right? But schools of education in particular, this stuff is really, really getting put in front of teachers. And this is the stuff that they learn. Um, and it goes all the way back to Rousseau in some ways, okay? And then I love that, and I just have this again, that Thomas Sowell quote, that African-American professor at Stanford, each new generation born is an, in fact an invasion by a civilization by little barbarians who must be civilized before it's too late. That's the opposite of Rousseau. But I just put that on there. And so two weeks ago, I kind of ended talking about how I expect my kids to be selfish. I expect my kids to fail because they're vipers and diapers. But I love them because they're still, you know, creating God's image. But you've got to do some training. But here we go. This is the romantic. So he's going to end. This is kind of how we ended on this quote from romanticism. And we're going to continue now. We're going to be on the backside with the romantic. So I'll let Truman take over for me because he's much more uh, erudite than myself. Here we go. Maybe.
1: One is, and under this perpetual constraint, the men who make up the herd of what is called society will, when placed in similar circumstances, all act in similar ways, unless more powerful motives incline them differently. This lies behind uh, what has come to be called Rousseau's notion of the noble savage, that man in a state of nature was instinctively good, Man in a state of nature was instinctively empathetic to others and would act in an upright moral fashion. And that it was society. It was the need to compete with others. It was the need to be something that you weren't really in order to get on. It was the need to get ahead that made man, that made woman wicked. That was the burden of the second discourse, he wrote, entitled On the Origins of Inequality. Think for a moment how influential those basic ideas have become. Child-centered learning is predicated on the notion that the child is fundamentally okay, and the purpose of education is to allow that child to express who they really are, to get out of the way, we might say. The notion, now a commonplace, now an intuition we all have, really, that it's society that is to blame for the problems of the individual, deep and powerful, that's Rousseau. He also inspired in his own day a move to think that the closer to nature one was, the more truly human, the more authentic one was. And that leads to his inspiration of the artistic cultural movement, which later scholars dub romanticism, this idea that reconnecting with nature will make us better people. I want to quote here from a work by Mary Wollstonecraft, the mother of uh, Mary Shelley, author of Frankenstein. Mary Wollstonecraft was a, a remarkably clever woman thinker, female thinker of the 18th century. And this is taken from her letters written in Sweden, Norway and Denmark. Listen to what she says about the power of nature to make human beings good. Nature is the nurse of sentiment, the true source of taste. Yet, what well, misery as well as rapture is produced by a quick perception of the beautiful and sublime when it is exercised in observing animated nature, when every beauteous feeling and emotion, notice the emphasis on psychology, every feeling and emotion excites responsive sympathy, and the harmonized soul sinks into melancholy or rises to ecstasy, just as the chords are touched like the Aeolian harp agitated by the changing wind. But how dangerous it is to foster these sentiments in an imperfect state of existence and how difficult to eradicate them when an affection for mankind, a passion for an individual is but the unfolding of that love which embraces all that is great and beautiful. When a warm heart has received strong impressions, they are not to be effaced. Emotions become sentiments and the imagination renders even transient sensations permanent by fondly retracing them. I cannot without a thrill of delight recollect views I've seen, which are not to be forgotten, nor looks I've felt in every nerve which I shall never more meet. The grave has closed over a dear friend, the friend of my youth. Still she is present with me, and I hear her soft voice warbling as I stray over the heath. Fate has separated me from another, the fire of whose eyes is tempered by infantine tenderness, but still warm my breast, even when gazing on these tremendous cliffs. Sublime emotions absorb my soul. What's Mary Wollstonecraft what saying there? Memories of great and powerful emotional experiences, particularly those connected to nature, shape who we are morally. It's our feelings. It's our feelings that make us moral persons. It's not society, it's not sophistication. It's attuning our feelings, our sentiments to the power, the awesome power of nature to the emotional experiences we have of love and friendship. This finds expression in William Wordsworth. William Wordsworth saw that as the very purpose of poetry. Not everybody can see a great view or stand in awe at the foot of a great mountain. But Wordsworth felt that a poet using language, bending language to his poetic (coughs) will, could recreate the emotional impact of nature. And therefore, make people better by the very reading of poetry, and it's why. I'm- so
0: your first blank: the power of nature to make human beings good. So they honestly believed in the Romantic era, and I can, and I, and so I have a music. My undergraduate degree, before I got into theology and got my masters and got certified in all these other different things, my undergraduate degree was in music history and literature. And so the Romantic era of music is a part of this. Okay, and that thinks late 1700s well into the, maybe the earliest 20th century. So it's from about 17, 70s, 80s, up until about the teens, right before World War I. is sometimes called the Romantic Era. You see it in paintings, you see it in music, you see it in literature, you see it all over, okay? And there's, the, it's, it's a very um, mixed bet. Some are better than others, to be honest, from a Christian perspective, but also even from a philosophical perspective. What he's leaving out, so I'm gonna give you a little bit of a, of, of a little thing that maybe helps you understand why this was attractive to people, So right before the Romantic era is the Age of Enlightenment. And so the Age of Enlightenment is this idea that we can reduce everything to machines. We can understand how everything works scientifically. We can organize society scientifically. We can have a program for everything. You see how this works? So we're going to scientifically direct the economy. We're going to scientifically direct the food distribution. The French Revolution is a great example of this. It was an Enlightenment revolution that went wrong, basically. It was the idea that everything can be... Uh, reduced to its component parts and atomized. And what the Romantics did is they reacted against that. They said, now remember, this is, so the, Enlightenment's got, the Enlightenment, a lot of those philosophers like Voltaire and others kind of got rid of God. Rousseau himself kind of got rid of God. His version of God was kind of nature sort of thing, kind of a pantheistic view of God. But they kind of got rid of God. And so then what do you replace it with? Well, for them it was science, science and progress and faith in humanity, this kind of humanism. That was the faith. But many people, especially artists, musicians, poets, and others, reacted against reducing mankind to a machine. And so they said, there's more to me, there's more to human experience than just abstract atomization. Are you tracking me on this? And so they're, they're actually right about that. The problem is, is the solution is kind of worse than the cure, if that makes sense. So for those who's kept in touch with the great tradition, so, in other words, maintain their Christian faith or had a respect for the past. Their romanticism is still contained. Are you with me on this? So they they still use form. They still look kind of classical in terms of their artwork. Their poetry is still readable. Their music still makes reference to the music that comes before them. You see what I mean? So there's some that keep it contained, but they're trying to recover this sense of mystery and this uh, and the bizarre in nature or the uh, the macabre. This is the era. Do you notice that she's the, the the parent of Frankenstein? The idea, that's actually that's actually not by accident. Because in the world, not Frankenstein himself, of course, the author of Frankenstein, right? So Mary Shelley. That was an odd, that was an odd statement. But the, the author, sorry, I said that weird. The author of Frankenstein, Mary Shelley, that is not an accident. So you go in nature and experience things. And so when she writes Frankenstein, Frankenstein is an awesome book describing this conflict. Because here's this man of science. Right? Who's, who's reduced all of humanity and he's reduced it so, to the point where he can actually create and animate life. But it gets out of hand and the creature, by the way, Frankenstein is not the creature. Frankenstein is actually the doctor. A lot of people forget that. It's actually Frankenstein's creature that people image, right? With like the, the pins in his neck and all that <laughs> stuff. Okay. But there's a main, I can't remember when it came out. It's like 80s or 90s. There's a made for TV movie that's a little bit more truer to the original vision. The creature actually confronts Frankenstein. And says, do I have a soul? What is my nature? Can I love? Can I, you see what he's doing? So the creature is asking Frankenstein these questions. And so in Mary Shelley's work, she's showing this. This is, this is romanticism. It's the essence of romanticism. Is you can't reduce human, human beings to just a scientific artifice. You can't reduce scientific beings to just a machine. And so romanticism was a reaction against that. The problem was, is because now you've gotten rid of the source for transcendent truth, God, right? Now, where are you going to find that sense of transcendent truth? And you're going to find it in nature. Or you're going to find it where? In you. You see what's going to happen here? So there's a reason that this historical development takes place. So romanticism, in some ways, is actually a healthy reaction against an overreach by some of the Enlightenment. The problem is, is some of those then divorce themselves from reality or the great tradition and it becomes all meaning. And so now you can create reality if you're a really good poet. You can make people better if you just write good enough music and they're in harmony with nature, then you can have this moment. You have these sublime moments. The idea of the sublime is a big romantic term. It doesn't, and I have to explain this to students all the time, romanticism is not I love my girlfriend and we're running through fields of flowers and we're Twitter pated. That's not romanticism. That's actually part of it, but it's much bigger than that. Romanticism is also going in the forest and seeing ghosts and dying for no reason. And nobody can explain it. That's romanticism. Do you see what I mean? So there's, or the idea that I went into nature and I had this moment, there was this little moment where I saw the sunset and I saw and it went down. I saw the stars and I was just at this, this little quick moment felt like I was one with nature. And I've had this emotional experience that I can't even put into words. And it's there that I realized who I really am. And so in Idaho and in a Montana and Wyoming, kind of my neck of the woods, where I grew up in Montana and now live in Idaho, uh, Western Americans are romantics about nature. The mountains are my church. See, that's we've inherited a little of this in the Rocky Mountain West in particular. We've inherited that kind of romantic view of nature. This has never really gone away in the United States. Your experience with romanticism, there's two big authors. Uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson. Have You ever heard that name before? And Henry David Thoreau. You ever had to read Walden as a high schooler? That's America's version of romanticism. It's called transcendentalism. But Henry David Thoreau, just like Rousseau, I need to live away from society, so I'm going to have my property called Walden out in the woods and kind of live off the grid, and that's how I can be my authentic self. See what I mean? So romanticism hits the United States through Thoreau and Emerson, and that's where we in the west parts of the United States during the age of expansion have inherited that. So you know all about romanticism. It's what we do outside. That's how we experience it. In Europe and other places, it's mostly through the arts is where they experienced it, okay? And so you'll see that in nature. And so how do I write good music? Well, I gotta go hike in the mountains then I'll write good music. That's literally how people like Beethoven and Brahms and others thought is that, now the difference is somebody like with Brahms or Beethoven is they would also look back to the past and say, what can I learn from these great classicists and church composers and the Renaissance? They would actually look back and learn from it. Others would say, I need to do it all on my own. Because after all, to be my authentic me, I have to be absolutely creative and can't rely on anybody else because that's not being authentic. So now we've got to blow up all the rules, blow up the whole system, just to be my authentic self. See where this is is headed in the arts? So this is, you can tell I have to talk about this all the time. This is romanticism. Okay, so that's what he's referring to. And he's particularly focusing on poetry, but just know in the visual arts and in in novels and in music, this is a hugely influential thing on us. And it still is with us. Most of us look at the arts romantically which is why rock stars can behave the way they do. And people just say, well, that's just what rock stars do. They're just, they're just, they're troubled souls. They're, they're artists suffer for their art. And so it's okay if they're drug addicted and have five girlfriends. Well, that's just rock stars. We can let them do it because they're suffering for their art. But an average everyday person can't do those things. The reason is we have a romantic view of the arts. That's why. Okay. So anyways, let's keep this going.
1: With poetry, he simple and rural themes. Famously, he wrote a book, uh, a poem with what today would be the remarkably politically incorrect title of The Idiot Boy. we would say a poem about a boy with learning difficulties. And he was criticized for this by a former friend, by friends who said to him, you know, why have you written a book about a poor uh, child with learning difficulties? And his response was, because there you see humanity at its most genuine. We would say the child with learning difficulties has no filter. What you see is what you get. By studying humanity in that form, or by studying humanity in the form of a poor rural folk, uninhibited by the false sophistication of the city, there you see true humanity in its best form. Think of how significant that has become for today. Think of how significant the figure of the artist has become. How much of the way we think about the world morally is shaped by artistic productions, movies, music, plays, novels, sitcoms, soap operas. It doesn't have to be sophisticated stuff. Notice what all of these things often have in common. They bring forth emotions. They appeal to our sentiments. They appeal not to our reason, so much as they do to our passions, to shape how we think. That's Rousseau. That's the Romantics. But then a serious question arises. What happens? What happens if nature itself has no meaning? What happens if our passions are just passions? There is no objective moral quality or no objective moral standard by which we might judge them. What happens then? What happens, to put it in the terms of Charles Taylor, what happens if the imminent frame becomes the sole and dominant way of thinking about the world we live? What if nature is just chaos? What becomes of humanity then? What becomes of morality then? How are our psyches to be formed? What are we to make of religion and ethics in that context? Well, that takes us to our next two lectures, and to two of the greatest thinkers of all time, the Karl Marx and to Friedrich Nietzsche. Okay,
0: so that's how he ends this. If you didn't get, if you didn't get to the uh, the blank there, belief in the artist is one who can connect people in this truth. It's truth that you create truth in your art, and that I'm not kidding. You will find romantics that will actually say that certain composers or certain artists or certain poets are literally, and this is the language used, it's religious, they'll say they are priests of their art. Because they're like, they are able to give you, uh, the priest is somebody who advocates for the people, the person who gives you religious instruction, the person who gives you religious meaning. And so if you're a composer or an artist or whoever it is, you are now able to communicate to people and give people truths that they would not have experienced it before. Isn't that kind of interesting how they think? So that's how people look at things. So that's we, That's why we like stories and narratives as opposed to propositional truth. Excuse me, I gotta get my coffee here. Um, so, how this works is instead of saying, like, I, I have I actually, I'll put the ancient Greeks up here, and this is fascinating. The ancient Greeks thought about all this stuff, just so you know. They're like, you know, 2000, we're reinventing the wheel again, just so you know. Okay. But the ancient Greeks would talk <laughs> about this also. And that Aristotle, for example, was concerned at how do you know if something's actually true or not? And so from Aristotle, we get syllogistic reasoning. We get logic, right? So the most famous example of this is all men are mortal, premise one, premise two. Socrates is a man, conclusion. Socrates is mortal. You recognize that kind of reasoning. That's called syllogistic reasoning. So premise one, premise two, conclusion. That was a way for Aristotle to say how we can know truths. Okay, and so this is a reflection of how the Greeks were thinking. But the playwrights, the drama folks, we're interested in, okay, what happens when man acts according to his instincts and his baser nature? What happens when mankind is consumed by excessive pride? Hubris is the big word for that. Or what happens if you act more like an animal? You know, like when you like, you're overcome with like that passion, right? And so if you look at these guys, some of you might recognize those names, Aeschylus, Sophocles and Euripides. I'm glad I left it on the board. But if you, if you think about their place, well, that's part of what they were doing is Aeschylus was saying, okay, how can we not be like those pagans in the past that were just like awful, okay? Sophocles says, how can we refine our civilization to be true, democratic, rational people? But Euripides says, if you're overcome by emotions, don't forget that without civilization, you're a little more than an animal. So it's a real, you see what I'm saying? So they, 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 the Greeks were onto this. They were thinking about this sort of stuff, which is why I like teaching Western sin to freshmen because like lights click, you know, it's kind of fun um, because they do that sort of thing. Because they see that, The ancient Greeks thought about that, but we tend to think like Euripides that art now, because we've got modern science, we've created these dichotomies and this dichotomous way of thinking. And so this is how this works. I'm going to use um, my uh, Promethean here, and I've done this before, but this is just a reminder, because this is going to help us when we get to Marx next week, and also to um, uh, Nietzsche and Darwin. Those are going to be some people that we're going to be studying, some kind of big figures in terms of how we get the modern self, but... This is another reason why you have that chart in front of you, the grid. If you want to look at that grid, you can also look at that. I'm going to do something a little bit different. But if you, the way the grid works is you have three eras of thought, okay? And you have, and this is just kind of eras of history. They're not exact time periods because any historian will tell you there's lots of overlap. So that's not, they're not exact time periods. But the pre-modern era is really anything pre 1700s. So think before the 1700s is the pre-modern era. The modern era, if you want to write that in, you can. I can put it up here, too. So we call this pre- I've got to use my writing here. Thank you. So for pre-modern, look at that. big. Okay, so pre-modern, this would be like, this is pre-1700s, okay? So anything before the 1700s is the pre-modern era. Okay, the modern era, and this is the era of Rousseau and the Romantics, is sometimes said to be the 1700s to the 1990s with the fall of the Berlin wall and the collapse of communism, because that was like the glass kind of great modern system that people had faith in. And it didn't work. Now people were trying to resurrect it, but it didn't really work. Okay. So you have the modern era, the 1700s to the 1900s. If that's the case, then oh, I'll right over here. Sorry. It's not the most organized thing in the world. The postmodern, which means after modern era is the 1990s to the present. So, this is everybody in this room, looking around, everybody in this room, you've lived in this transition to the postmodern era. Um, I was born in 1984. My wife's 1985. So, I'm an older millennial. Okay. So, I'm considered an older millennial, borderline Gen Xer. So, I kind of have a mix of those two. If you know your generational studies, I'm kind of a combo of Gen X and millennial. Okay. And so, I was born in 1984. um, And so, my childhood was when this was happening. But when you live in a place like Northern Montana, you're kind of isolated from it. You get what I'm saying? If you're in a place like East Idaho, with our LDS community neighbors and other things, you're kind of screened from some of this initially, right? So from the '90s, early 2000s, yeah, you might see some weird stuff happening in the cities, but you don't see it right away. Is that fair? You get what I'm saying? Like you don't? It doesn't seem that off. Then all of a sudden, as it percolates like anything in Idaho, Montana, eventually the culture from the cities, via what Carl Truman pointed out mass media, uh, through music, through movies, it starts to hit younger generations, right? And it starts to become more popular, and you start to see some of these ramifications. So this is what that chart means. So as you look, there's different presuppositions. So in other words, what do people assume going into things? And this is where I have my little I told you so moments. I made this in 2012. Is what you're seeing in the culture and understanding the times is the postmodern era starting to come to its full fruition. Notice also, I think it's like the fourth or five thing. I talked about self-identity. You can describe your identity, meaning, and stuff to yourself. I actually put that on the chart in 2012. This is exactly, And what Truman's done is explain why that's there. (laughs) But that's what we're dealing with right now. So what this leads to is dichotomous reasoning. And it goes all the way back to the romantics and the enlightenment. So I'm going to make my my pen here a little bit smaller. And I've done this exercise before, but I want to do it again just to kind of show you how this has worked what's happened is because of the enlightenment and the romantic era we have this fact value dichotomy and i'm going to contrast this with the christian worldview at the end of class there's going to be a method to my madness here but what truman's talking about here is this fact value uh, dichotomy and so if nature if nature is the realm of science and facts like the enlightenment that's stuff we can know But things like your self-perception, that's just your own personal value and that can be fungible and changeable depending on how you feel, right? And so here's some things that are considered facts. I'll change colors here. So like math, well, that's just a fact. Science, okay? Uh, Most people would say economics, okay? These are things that you can study and you can test and you can repeat and put in a test tube where you can create theory and see it in action right? Other things would be uh, uh, like the news, even though you can interpret the news wrongly, but there's still that, right? That sort of thing. Reality itself. These are facts, but values are things like music, culture, uh, religion, morals, hence value, right? Morals, the arts in general, ethics, and so what this does is people kind of create um, this dichotomy in their brains where, well, if we can study it scientifically, that's a fact. But if you can't study it, then that's just your opinion. Okay, so you have faith. That's great for you because that's just your values. So if your value is that you're religious on Sundays or that you're a Christian, that's your values. and That's fine. I'm happy for you. But, oh, but science, if you disagree with science, then you're out of touch with reality. You see how that th- thinking kind of impacts us? So go back to the Romantics. Go back to Truman. This is why I'm trying to I'm trying to get, get something across here. This is why we view the arts romantically. That's why I'm drawing a circle right here. We view things like the arts here. But we view things like science here, which is why we say things like beauty is in the eye of the beholder, or it's all apples and oranges. Sound familiar? Well, it's just all a matter of taste. Think about that. That's how we talk. I mean, we all do this. We talk about this with music. Well, let's just taste. It doesn't matter. The ancient Greeks would have, would have rejected that thinking, and the pre-modern man would have rejected that thinking. Because all of reality was one holistic whole. All truth is God's truth. So the ancient Greeks would have said, hey, you see those columns? Those are inherently beautiful. And if you disagree with that, there's something wrong with you. Think about what I just said. For the ancient Greeks, they would have built a beautiful columns, with temples, everything's symmetrical, perfectly arranged, everything lines up, it's ordered, it's, uh, it's, uh, are, it's tastefully done. They would, have, they would have shown you one of their most beautiful uh, temples like the Parthenon and said, that is objectively beautiful for, beautiful for everybody everywhere. That there's actually a scientific mathematical law of beauty. They would have actually said that you can measure beauty mathematically. See how they have one same reality. Okay, so in other words, the golden ratio or the golden mean, some of you might've heard that before. And that's why they, they observed that in nature and said, huh, this must be a law of nature. And so let's make our architecture and our plays, nothing in excess, everything reflect this golden mean, this golden ratio. And so therefore math, science, art, religion, music, new, all of this is one whole for the ancient Greeks. And if you don't understand that to them, I'm just, I'm communicating to this. This is the pre-modern era. The issue was not that it wasn't objectively true. The issue is that you were blind enough or not educated enough to see it. So they believe in objective reality. It's true for everyone everywhere. You follow me on this? This is pre-modern. So what romanticism does for some in the extremes, because they viewed this stuff as like the enlightenment, they said, well, that's not everything I experience as a person. So when it comes to the arts or it comes to my religion, my, the other side of my human being, we bifurcated us. We have this kind of divide now, this fact-valued economy, which the medieval Christians would have rejected, the ancient Romans and Greeks would have rejected, the ancient Jews would have rejected. But we assume this more often than we think. Well, that's just my, it's all about taste. Your taste in music, it's just, you know, it's just your taste. Everybody's got their own personal preferences and that's okay. The Greeks would have, would have heartily disagreed with that. Plato in his Republic says, when the mode of the music changes, the walls of the city shake. That's Plato, okay? And it's Republic, and that's about an ideal society, okay? It's saying an ideal society, saying that music has an enormous power and that when the music changes, something's going on in your city, the polis. That's the city, right? The life of the city. So when the mode of the music changes, the walls of the city shake. It's an interesting observation. So he would have—he actually went as far as to say what modes and scales of music are appropriate for different settings for his ideal city. We would hate that. We would just say, what's well, all about taste? What are you talking about? It's just music. See that dichotomous thinking that we've adopted and that goes back to the Romantics. So think about this now with value, what we're gonna add, and this is why we're doing the modern self is identity. That's just your personal value. That's not scientific. It doesn't matter if in science, I observe that you have boy parts or girl parts. What matters is what you value and how you feel on the inside. What's your authentic you? See, so this bifurcated thinking that starts here is a huge deal for the way we think about reality. Now, here's the funny thing about this. At its most fundamental level, nobody can truly absolutely live this way, but we want to function in this way because it avoids difficult conversations and it allows us to make our own personal choices. That's why we like it. I get to choose. I get to choose what music movies and stuff I think are good. I get to choose what my ethics and values are. I get to choose what my identity is. I see how, see how it's self-centered. We're here. Well, yeah, we agree that like, you know, the way photosynthesis works, that's just, that's science. And we agree with that and we all have access to that. But when it comes to a search for meaning, oh boy, it's gotta be here. Because what this allows me to do, and this is what's gonna get us to next week, and then I wanna show you something. What this allows me to do is to say, well, reality doesn't involve God. Like how things really are, there's no God. It's all naturalism. It's all nature. It's all the imminent frame is the word that Carl Truman uses. It's all the imminent frame. And since it's all the imminent frame, I can recreate any of this stuff because it's inherently not scientific. And this allows me to do because there's nothing else anyways. So you're oppressing me for being my authentic me because I'm not accountable to anyone. Why are you stopping me? Why judge me? There's no... Ultimate reference point, right? So that's this. This is it. I, it's really hard for me to kind of explain this to students because they have a hard time. Because I'll, I'll do this. I do this test. You'll just love it. I'll have to do this with you sometime. I have a PowerPoint that I have for my kids, and I show like these great works of art, and then I show like a chicken art scratch that I did in a Microsoft Paint. And I said, that's better art than that. Prove me wrong.
2: <laughs>
0: and they struggle. <laughs> it's like, what's well, all just a matter of taste? Why You're saying Michelangelo's Sistine, Sistine Chapel is better than my Microsoft Paint? How dare you judge me? That's my value. It's all about taste. How are you? You see what I'm doing? And they don't know how to answer because we've been sold this sort of thing. Whereas I would argue, like the ancient Greeks, there are certain things that are objective. Yes, there's a difference between Michelangelo and Raphael. That would be taste. But they're both excellent. They're both praiseworthy. They're both, you get know what I'm saying? There's a difference between Mozart and Haydn. That would be taste. But to say a guy strumming in his guitar is equally valid as Mozart, well, we got a different we got a different debate. Are you kind of getting the point that I'm making on this? But we've all bought into this, and it's really hard to unlearn this sort of thing. It impacts us in the church all the time. Well, as long as your heart's in the right place, it doesn't matter. Think about that, and what that actually means. See what I'm saying? Do we reject objective truth just because? Well, if your heart's in the right place, it's okay. See, and so we we bought it into this in the church because we've put religion here. It's not based on objective truth, and so yeah, just praise God however you want. See, we do this all the time, and it's and it's just something, and it's really hard to unpack this noodle. I mean, this is I mean, this would take years of unlearning, right, to actually get to that. What's the Yoda? Right, you must unlearn what you have learned. That's this is one of those moments where to, to blow this up, we would have to unlearn what we have learned. And it's just, it's just our default. It's our default. That's what Carl Truman points out. He's like, ask my dad, my grandpa about, or do you find fulfillment in your job? He would say, yeah, it puts food on the table. It provides for my kids. You know, he's like, ask me. And I say, yeah, it's very fulfilling. I get a real kick out of this. That's his instinctual thing. And so it's an instinct because it's so programmed into us. It's the cultural imaginary that everybody assumes is the word that he'll use from that. Okay, so this dichotomy, we'll talk more about this when we get to critical theory, because what critical theory is going to do is to say, because all this stuff is fungible, we can therefore interpret society however it means to us. So if I experience society as oppressive, it is therefore oppressive. See what I mean? Because it's my experience, and you can't question my experience. In fact, we need alternative experiences and alternative sources of knowledge, because science itself is oppressive, because it stops me from, see, being my authentic me. So when we get to critical theories, this comes back when it comes to critical theories. So what I want to end with, this is what I want to end with today, is I want to say that we as Christians hold to objective truth. We cannot lose this. Christ says, this is my Christian worldview moment. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the father, but by me. Christ will say to God in his farewell discourse to the father, he's God himself, of course, thy word is truth. He says this in the gospel of John. We believe in absolute objective truth. Now we might be clouded in our vision. We may not see it clearly in all circumstances at all times. I'm willing to admit that we have our own biases and stuff. Of course, nobody's denying that. But we still believe that reality is real and that truth is actually out there. And this is why I gave you that pre-modern chart. If you look at pre-modern, that language is referential. It can refer to truth. You see that? That truth is noble. That it's referential. So when I speak two plus two equals four, it actually means something and corresponds to reality, not just another language game of symbols. Okay, that's a change. We cannot, if we believe, this is my biggest thing. This is this is why this is important to me. And I think Pastor Dinger would agree with me on this too. We have to have absolute truth or God's word is meaningless. Because we believe that God's word is truth. And if it's the foundation for our faith, if it's not, abs- if we can't believe in objective truth and the objective nature of God's word, what are we standing on? Nothing, because it can be it can mean whatever you want it to mean. It's just up to your interpretation. Or do we believe it's, you see what I'm saying? So this is something that we can't. So I wanna show you, this is from, um, what would you say? This is called Definitions Matter. This is a great theory uh, series they do. We'll watch a couple other ones in the future. One's called Tolerance, and the other one's on Freedom. But I wanna do this stuff here as we get all these advertisements.
2: You're in a conversation with someone about truth, but you get the sense that what they mean by truth and what you mean by truth are not the same thing. What would you say? Definitions matter. In conversations with others, we'll often find that we are using the same vocabulary, but not the same dictionary. If we wanna have good conversations, we should first clarify our definitions. The next time the word truth comes up in a conversation, here are three things to remember. Number one. Some people mistakenly treat their subjective claims as though they are objectively true. Subjective truth claims are grounded in the subjects, the people who make them. My statement, chocolate chip cookies are the best dessert, for example, is a matter of personal opinion. I, as the subject, get to decide if the claim is true. And while it may be true for me, it isn't necessarily true for others. That's okay because everyone is entitled to their personal, subjective opinion about a variety of claims, from what they prefer for dessert, desire in a new car, or favor for a movie. But many people think all truth claims are a matter of personal or cultural perspective. If this is correct, truth is entirely subjective, grounded either in the personal views of individual subjects or the collective cultural consensus of groups of subjects. Number two. Understanding the difference between subjective and objective truth claims can be a matter of life or death. While my claim about dessert is grounded in my personal subjective tastes, some claims are true regardless of my preferences. That's because they aren't grounded in the desires of a subject, but are instead grounded in the nature of an object. We call these kinds of claims objective truth claims. Imagine, for example, you're foraging for edible mushrooms with a friend. Your goal is the tasty Asian patty straw mushroom, a variety of mushroom that is used extensively in Asian cuisines. You find one, but your friend abruptly stops you from picking it. That's not a patty straw, she says. That's a death cap mushroom. They look alike, but death caps are called that for a reason. They are extremely poisonous. You smartly decide to leave the mushroom alone. What made your friend's statement about the death cap mushroom true? Was it simply her subjective opinion? If you held a different opinion about the mushroom, would that have rendered it safe to eat? Is the truth about the poisonous nature of the mushroom grounded in your subjective opinion or in the nature of the mushroom itself? Your friend's declaration is an excellent example of an objective truth claim. The death cat mushroom is poisonous for anyone who eats it, whether they would personally affirm the claim or not. Death-cap mushrooms are poisonous is an objective claim about reality rooted in the nature of the object, the mushroom. It might be a true objective claim, or it might be a false objective claim. But one thing is certain, our personal subjective opinion won't change the innate nature of the mushroom. Number three, caring people help others to understand the difference between subjective and objective truth claims. Imagine responding to your friend's claim about the mushroom in the following way. Mushrooms have been a delicacy for thousands of years and I love them. From my perspective, they're all safe to eat. Should your friend intervene and stop you from eating the death cap? If so, on what basis could she do this if all truth claims are simply a matter of perspective? If your friend does stop you from eating the poisonous mushroom, should that intervention be seen as oppressive or hateful or some form of bigotry? If all truth claims are simply a matter of subjective perspective, her efforts could certainly be seen in one of those ways. But if there is an objective deadly truth about the nature of the death cat mushroom, her efforts to help you see the difference between subjective and objective claims should be seen as nothing less than an act of righteous compassion. She apparently loved you enough to clarify your confusion. When we share what's objectively true about the nature of God, the claims of Christianity, or the truth of the Christian worldview, we show a similar concern for the people we love. Christianity may be true, or it may be false, but one thing is certain, our personal subjective opinion about Jesus won't change who He is or what He did for us. Don't be afraid to help people understand that truth involves more than their personal perspective. Your efforts just may save their lives. So, the next time you're in a conversation and the word truth comes up, remember these three things. Number one, some people mistakenly treat their subjective claims as though they are objectively true. Number two, understanding the difference between subjective and objective truth claims can be a matter of life or death. Number three, caring people help others understand the difference between subjective and objective truth claims. For what would you say? I'm Jay Warner-Wallace. If you have any
0: questions or comments, email them to podcast at gracepocatello.org and make sure to subscribe to our channel to stay up to date on sermons and classes at Grace Lutheran Church in Pocatello, Idaho. This podcast is designed so that you can take grace with you anywhere you go.